last week, uh, as we returned to Acts chapter 8, our point was that beyond pain, which we were wrestling with in January, is promise. And God wants us to respond to that by seizing opportunity that he uh, offers coming out of his uh, promises. And we saw a couple of examples of that that we could learn from, Philip and Simon, and we did. And I called you to act, to do, to step out, see yourself for who you are, uh, and make progress and look at others the same way, be understanding, but not to settle either, but to do what you should do. Now, that's good, and uh, that's also bad uh, in the sense that we need to know what our part is, and we need to know what God's part is. There are two stories of Philip in Acts chapter 8, and uh, the second story of Philip is going to help us understand a little bit better what is God's part in all of this, and what is my part, the perennial question of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God's work and our participating with him in that. What I'm calling the heavenly human partnership. The constant tension of God's moving and our applied abilities. And I call it a tension very intentionally. Sorry for the pun. Uh, Many people like to call this a balance balancing God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And I don't believe it's a balance. Because if it were a balance, we're, we, we lose ourselves in trying to figure out where the perfect balance is. And we argue about whether it's this or it's exactly that. Instead, what I find in Scripture is that it's a tension. And it's a tension we must live in and are intended to live in. And this is a very relevant question as we see where we're going. As we started the fall, we wanted to look at what God was doing next, and now we want to see where we are supposed to be next, and then who we're supposed to see next. So this is all about our responding. So how do we find this balance? Well, the narrative can many times help us. Um, stories, examples, help us see how this particular tension is lived out. And that's what we have in this particular passage. And so I'd like to read it in Acts chapter 8. Beginning in verse 26, and you have Bibles in front of you, and you'll find a little uh, slip of paper like this with a map on it you're going to want to use in a minute anyway, and on the top of that is a page number where you can find this if you're not familiar with where the book of Acts is. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way. He met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. 
Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared in Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, one of the first things we can do from this text is look at it geographically, just to help us understand even this question today. Sometimes it helps just to put things on a map. Uh, in college, you know how you have to take a certain amount of courses, then you get electives, and so, you know, confession this morning, good for the soul. I was looking for an elective that wouldn't be too hard, okay? And I signed up for a course called Geographical Bible Lands, one of the most insightful courses I ever took, as just plotting things on a map can help us see the intentionality of God as he unfolds his story. And so, what does this particular map uh, show us? It shows us God's leading and Philip's travels. And now you can follow the one, two, three, and four. He finds himself first in Jerusalem. He's one of the seven deacons. We saw that last week. It was chosen to serve the widows. And uh, then there are two journeys in Acts chapter 8 that are recorded. The first one from the persecution that spreads uh, the people out into Samaria, one of the places. And he's a part of that as he evangelizes with great success there. And the second story, which we're going to end up looking at today, he preaches to this Ethiopian eunuch. That's number three. Moves all the way down there, this road on the way down to Gaza. And then he, you know, gets some celestial transport and finds himself then moving up the... Uh, coast of um, towards uh, Caesarea. Now, this isn't just where Philip went, but also how Philip went. Look at God's part and his part. First of all, in Jerusalem, he was chosen to serve as a deacon. God leads him into ministry. That's God's part. But then he actually serves. He actually does it. He doesn't walk around with a badge going, I'm a deacon. He, he serves the needs of these people. There's his part in God choosing him to do something. Then in Samaria, God's the one that brought about the persecution that spread these people into these different places. That was God's part. But his part was to then speak up and share this message with the people that he had gone to speak to. Our text today, then, is number three on the road to Gaza. Consider God's part. He's leading and orchestrating this particular meeting. Taps him on the shoulder, says, I want you to go down to this road. Doesn't tell him exactly what he's going to find. Just get on the road to Gaza. And then he comes and whispers in his ear. See the guy with the chariot? Wants you to go speak to him. Now consider Philip's part. Seizing the opportunity. Doesn't complain and say, I don't want to go to Gaza. I don't like the south. I like the snow up north, whatever. You know, he, he goes. And then he's ready to speak up and start the conversation. It's not like God tapped the eunuch on the shoulder and said, listen to this guy. He said, speak up. Talk to him. And he did. And he starts the conversation. He's ready to explain the message. And then he's even willing to, you know, bring application, lead the man to faith, and to baptism. Now, before we arrive at some conclusions and applications about this uh, tension I want you to live in, let's understand a little bit about the eunuch and uh, the significance of him being in this story, and then the significance of the passage that is actually used here as well from the Old Testament. So first of all, the eunuch, he's on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, he's probably a proselyte of the Jews, or he might have been one of the dispersed Jews. Uh, in the Old Testament, at the uh, time of the exile of Babylon, there was a tremendous spreading of Jews all around the world, and uh, he may have been uh, a dispersed Jew that lived in Ethiopia, and he knew he was a Jew and continued to return from time to time uh, to uh, Jerusalem. Um, 
He's certainly sympathetic, whatever the case is. Can't be totally sure. Not necessarily emasculated, which um, is the common understanding of eunuch. Uh, that word can mean, in the Septuagint and in the Greek vernacular that uh, the New Testament was written in, it can mean a high official, which certainly fits with the important position that he holds. It certainly fits with uh, the money that he had and the opportunity of having a chariot to ride all the way there and back again. So it's possible that that's the meaning of it. But there's no saying that he wasn't a eunuch as well. And I think it's rather compelling, discovering something this week in my study about this, that he's reading the book of Isaiah. The Isaiah has a word to eunuchs. Who knew? Well, except that we believe that God's message is meant to touch all people. So, very interesting that in just a few chapters after the one they're going to deal with here, in Acts chapter 56, it says, let no foreigner... So already there, if he's, if he's a foreigner, it's talking to him. Who has bound himself to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Wow, verses, just for him. And not only as a eunuch, but if he was a foreigner, it goes on and says, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. No wonder this guy liked this prophet. There were verses in here right for him. And if you recognize that last phrase, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, if that seems familiar, that's the phrase that Jesus quoted when he cleansed the temple and drove the money changers out of the court, and the court was called the court of the Gentiles, the place where all of these people from other nations were to come and to pray exactly what he was doing. He loved this prophet. And I think that's why he was reading it. And then as he, of course, moves on, well, let me apply that for a second. We have a mission around here to touch all people with God's message. Can you see how that's rooted in God's word? His house is to be a place of prayer for all people. That's why we're going to have a missions conference in a couple of months, because we believe that this message is applicable to all people. And, we, and it's rooted in these very kinds of passages. So he had gone to Jerusalem to worship and pray, and I think this was his favorite prophet, and he's reading it and he comes to a passage where he has questions. And his question actually speaks to our very tension that we're talking about today again. Is this about the prophet or is this about another? And Philip explains our part is that Isaiah is writing. God's part is that he is working. And he's working through one who became like us on the part of God. Right there we have the tension. Who carries out God's work to accomplish what all of us need. And there's a bigger picture with essential parts in it that must play their vital role. Now the eunuch accepts the message and he believes. And he becomes one of the means for spreading to the uttermost parts of the earth. Remember, Luke is writing Acts and he said in 1.8, 
You'll be my, he quotes Jesus, you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts. That's why this story is in here. Luke is continuing to report how the message is spreading and flourishing. Now, Isaiah chapter 53. Interesting that he uses this. Matthew and John also use this particular passage for their own reasons in different ways. Luke directly applies this passage to the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who takes our place, who never argued that he shouldn't die on the cross, accepts that in silence to take your place and offer you a free gift of salvation. In the words of Mark, the only one who doesn't quote from Isaiah chapter 53, he says the same thing in these words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the eunuch sees the connection between these and he believes. And then baptism follows. And that really was a a pretty logical thing for a couple of reasons. First of all, to a Jew, uh, that was not out of the question. John the Baptist was baptizing long before Jesus came uh, uh, onto the scene. So baptism was a concept that they knew that they would do in spiritual response to what God was doing. Or Philip is just doing what he'd already been doing. When they baptized the thousands in Jerusalem that came to Christ, and then in Acts chapter 2 in Samaria as well. Now, if you were very astute and you're following uh, the reading this morning, you'll find that verse 36 jumps to verse 38. And verse 37 is not actually in there, probably in the Bible that you're reading. And there's a little footnote at the bottom that says, in the oldest manuscripts that we have, because we don't have the originals, but we have so many manuscripts, we can compare them with great accuracy and find that somebody added a little editorial comment. Now, there's nothing wrong with the comment. Um, It doesn't change anything about the significance of the message. I think there's a little application here. We like things being said just a certain way so that we can be sure that somebody knows Jesus. And I am as concerned as anybody that people come to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But sometimes that isn't expressed in just the words that we like. Like, I have accepted Jesus Christ into my life as my personal Savior and Lord. That's beautiful evangelicalese that lets every other evangelical know that I get it. But is it possible for somebody to get it and place their faith in Jesus Christ and not know how to just say those perfect words? I think that's true. And some little author here Uh, the copier, when he was coming to the manuscripts, says to Philip, I think, in his mind, you know, Philip, he never really said he believed in Jesus. Let me put that in there. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. So, I think we ought to give ourselves a little slack there, too. The issue is not about the words that we use as much as the true, genuine faith. Is it not true? So, that's just a little interesting thing there. This passage clearly prophesies of the sacrificial work of Christ and has been used countless times to show the work of the promised Messiah in the Old Testament fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now, let's draw some lessons and applications out of this passage. First of all, some lessons. God's work can be miraculous. He gives a divine appointment to Philip uh, and, and sends him on his way After he brings this guy to faith, he gets celestial transportation to another city. How'd you like to ride that bus, you know? Boom, from here to here. Sometimes God's work is amazing. It's miraculous. And sometimes it's mundane to us. Now, somebody came up to me after the first service and said, well, God's work is never mundane. And I suppose that's true. But from our perspective, 
Doesn't it just seem sometimes like you're just doing what you got to do? Well, you'll notice that um, in verse 40, so follow the map here, um, he, he got moved from somewhere on that road towards Gaza over to Azotus. If you look, it isn't that far. From there, he walks all the way to Caesarea. You'll notice most of the travel is walking. He also had to leave Samaria and walk all the way down to that road. In other words, God wants us to play a part in this. God meant to move Philip from one place to another. And one of those, it was a miraculous transport from, you know, beam me up Scotty. And most of the time, it was just one foot after the next, going where he was told to go. So God's work can be miraculous. Sometimes God's work, God's work is just mundane. And as I said last week, we, can pre- we cannot predict how God works. We just know that that he works and that, he, and that what he does is good. And then there's our part. And certainly that includes responsibility and ability. There's an openness on the part of Philip. He initiates the conversation. Once again, he, he gets brought to the place and he gets whispered in the ear to speak to the man, but he's got he's to speak up. He initiates the conversation, even though the God, God has arranged the meeting. And I want to bring in another little practical thing here. Most of us, as we want to share this message that's touched our lives, have found ourselves in situations and conversations where we wish we had said something. You ever done that? And we like to even, you know, it's a little false humility every once in a while. I can say, you know, I was talking with this person and I was trying to share with them what God had done in my life. And, you know, I wish I had said, you know, and, and, but you didn't say it. You know what? We all have those situations. You can always return to the conversation. You can always go back and say, you know, I was thinking about what you were saying. And now you've had an opportunity to think about it, to articulate the way you want to. You're also telling the person that that conversation meant a lot to you. So Philip is super ready. Not all of us are always super ready. Don't let that stop you. You end up in a situation, you wish you'd said something, go back and say, you know what? I was just thinking and pick it up from where it was. But he's, there's openness there. He's ready and he does that. And then there's diligence. He began, verse 35 says, with the passage and told the good news about Jesus Christ. He started right where he was and then he leads him to the cross. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher from, uh, from England, is famous for that for saying that. Start anywhere you want in the Bible and just beat a path to the cross. That's what's most important. Helping people get from where they are to where they need to be. And he's prepared to answer that. He can explain the passage. Apparently he's done some study and he can help him apply it. And he leads him to faith and to baptism. So, let's bring some application uh, to, this, to this little lesson that we've learned. When God says go, You've got to respond. He leads and we must respond. He sovereignly guides and we must be responsible with the abilities, we, the abilities we have to step up and do what we should. Now, I have sensed God's leading in my life in amazing ways. Undeniable, not, you know, wouldn't be miraculous. I haven't done the celestial transport thing, though, you know, that'd be cool. Um, but I've known the presence of God, His hand on my life, very, very clear, remarkable moving of the Spirit. And I can count maybe, I don't know, half a dozen of those. In the meantime, I've had a zillion Monday mornings, just like you, right? And by the way, I don't take Mondays off, so my Monday is just like yours. It's like, oh, got to do this again? Really, that's the way 
God says go sometimes. Just do what's right in front of you that you know that you're responsible for, that he has put in front of you for you to accomplish. It's still there. And you ignored it Saturday. Well, you better pick it up on Monday. You know what I mean? We all have that. And that's how God can lead. Sometimes it's amazing. And you just, you want to go, you want to do it. And sometimes it's, really? And he's going, yeah. The sun came up. I gave you another day. That means do something with it. And if it comes up, we all know that's true. Okay? So just go with me on that. If the sun comes up, he's giving you another day. He wants you to do what he wants you to do. And I think it's particularly applicable now. I know you guys are all suffering through all this snow. Sheesh, poor people. But, you know, January and February, aren't they kind of grind time? I mean, if there's a time of the year when we just have to just kind of keep going, this is it. More resignations are given in February than any other time of the year. Did you know that? This is grind time. So this is particularly applicable. Sometimes you just showed up in Azotus, boom, and people were like, wow, he must have been sent from God. And then you, and now it's like, yeah, I got to head up to Joppa. How am I getting there? One foot in front of the other. So when God says go, you respond. And sometimes that's amazing, and sometimes that's just mundane. But it's just as important. And then before God says go, get ready. There's a preparedness in Philip. That means we never stop learning. I see faithfulness in this guy. There was service before there was the spectacular. Before he got to do the celestial transport, he was chosen as a deacon to take care of women, widows. And he did his job. Before the spectacular, there was service. And so, you know, we need to be faithful and do what we're supposed to do. There was study involved in this. Somehow he knew this passage and he knew how to explain and walk this man from Isaiah to the cross. He started with little things and he cared for the widows in Acts chapter 6 and then God moves him to much greater things in Acts chapter 8 and he is responsible for the gospel getting to Ethiopia. But he started with the small and went to the big. In fact, it's Luke who records this. It also records in chapter 16 of his gospel, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with very much. Hmm. So the little is important. does matter because it leads to what is greater. And there's one more observation I think is really important that we get, and that is that you are a part of a, you are a piece in a much bigger picture. We are a part of a much bigger plan that God is orchestrating. And we have an opportunity to play a part. And sometimes we just think it's so menial, but it's not. Because what if Philip at any one moment had not said yes, had not responded to what he was supposed to do, small or large? I mean, who was he? He wasn't one of the super apostles. He didn't write half the rest of the New Testament. He's going to go up to Caesarea. Later in the book of Acts, we're going to find he's still there with his four daughters. Apparently, that was his final assignment, and he never moved from there. Well, who am I? You know, it all started so great, and I was like, you know, getting teletransported, and now I'm just stuck in Caesarea. But he was a small part of a much bigger plan, and it was an extremely significant part. I mean, look at the map once again. 
Just take uh, him for example. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, outermost parts of the earth. He started in Jerusalem. He got moved to Samaria. He gets sent down to Gaza, which is in Judea. And then he ends up leading a guy to the Lord who's going to start touching an uttermost part of the earth. We're all part of a bigger plan. Listen, it's not all about you. I say that all the time. But you are an essential part in that plan. And if each of us don't do our part, something gets undone. And we need to live that tension. It doesn't feel right sometimes. You wonder, but you got to live the tension. That God is accomplishing what He wants. He wants me to be a part of it. And I just got to do what I know how to do and respond to the opportunities that He brings in my way. So let me give you an illustration of that from this week. So my brother uh, was, had a big uh, retirement celebration for my brother in Washington, D.C. this week. So my wife and I went down there to be a part of that. And um, so it was a great thing. And I'll brag forever on my brother if you want to after the service and bore you to tears. But what happened at night was we stayed in a motel. And um, so we went to bed. And I usually can sleep anywhere. All I need is the opportunity, you know. So... <laughs> We, uh, we find ourselves in a really nice, you know, uh, little suite, and uh, we go to bed, and I slept for about an hour and a half, and then I woke up, and I couldn't sleep. So, you know, why couldn't I sleep? I mean, I'm used to heavier blankets. The blanket wasn't heavy enough. There was the, the way the air was moving in the room. I had two iced teas during the evening. I had too much caffeine. What, what, what? Why can't I sleep? You know, and my wife was usually a light sleeper, just, you know, sleeping away, and I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and I pull a blanket out, and I pull it, and that didn't work, and I got to have an... I know, this is over, after over an hour, right? So, not even a, a good motive here. I'll start praying, and the devil will put me to sleep, okay? So, try that, by the way, because it works, because he doesn't want us sleeping. I mean, he doesn't want us praying, so... So I did. I said, I mean, why not? You know, I've been doing nothing, and I got, you know, a little nudge. Well, why don't you pray, you knucklehead? You got nothing else to do. So I did. I started praying. And honestly, there's, I started praying for a number of things, but one person in particular, there was this nagging email that I hadn't gotten back to. It wasn't a bad email. I just hadn't gotten back to it. It was nagging at me that I hadn't gotten back to it. And it's somebody in particular that I've been praying for. And um, so I did. And uh, after a while, you know, that didn't work either. I was still awake. So I finally got up and said, you know, I'll, at least I'll answer the email. So there I am on my phone. And I'm, I'm explaining to him, too, as I start the thing off. Sorry, it's been a crazy day. I got your email. It's really important and inter- interesting. And I, you know, I got a couple of questions for you, too. And I um, just want you to know why I'm answering this at like 3 and 4 o'clock at the mor- in the morning, you know. Um, but you came to mind, and I was praying for you. So, you know, I just wanted you to know that. So eventually... I uh, guess I'd prayed enough I get sleepy, so you know I went back to sleep. Next morning, phone rings. It's him. Now, he starts off by saying, listen, God does not talk to me in the middle of the night. I'm not responsive. It just doesn't happen. Got to tell you that. He said, I had something happen to me. Right about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and he explained this experience and he said it was a comforting, reassuring, special blessing of God on my life. I sensed it. I sensed it almost tangibly that God was saying to me, I'm with you. I'm, up, I'm, I'm helping you. And he's facing something pretty significant and I'm going to be there. 
You know, in my words, do it. He said, I, when I woke up, I remembered. He goes, I never remember dreams. It was so clear. It was so vivid. I called my wife, because he wasn't with her at the time. He said, I called my wife. I told her the experience. And then I read your email. Now listen, there's no correlation to the angst or effort or, or, or will that I exerted in that prayer and the blessing on that man's life. It wasn't like I'd been fasting for 40 days. I drank too much tea. <laughs> but I was prompted to pray, and God worked. That's the tension. Live the tension. I can't explain if it was too much coffee or if God woke me up or if he meant for me to you know, be awake at that. Does it matter? It doesn't. God uses us, and we've got to be ready. We do our little part, and he does amazing things. Live the tension. And we can feel like our part is so small. And I felt that. I was feeling that. You know, my brother, again, I'll brag on him, but just amazing things happen. And I look at me and go, oh, first of all, he was such a moron. How did he get to where he is? And then secondly... <laughs> What am I doing? You know, it's like nothing. And this other guy's facing something really, really big, and I'm so proud of him too. And I'm like, this is going to be great. What am I doing? Just my little thing. Like God wants every one of us to do. So, for now, for this week, when the sun comes up tomorrow and you still hate the snow... Do what God says, right where you are. And before God says, go, get ready. Make sure that you are prepared. Never stop learning. He's got so much more in store, and we need to be ready for that. And it might be that he's just got you in a pattern right now to prepare you for what's coming. And then you are a part, an important piece of a much bigger picture. Accept that. Realize that. Be thankful. And honor God in it. Because it's probably bigger and greater than you realize. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for such clear lessons from obedient people like Philip. Forgive us for, for not responding as we should and not being ready or not speaking up or not doing or going or acting as we should. But I thank you that you always give us more opportunities and that you use us in remarkable ways, even when we don't think they are. I pray that each person here would see and realize just what an important piece they have in your greater picture. We know it's not about us. It's all about you. But in your amazing ways, you've decided to use little people like us in whom you've invested your image and your presence to do things for you. Help us this week 
as we grind through January and February and March. Help us to do and to be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.